Hello, everyone, and welcome back to HOA. It's a true story. We have an interesting topic today. We're speaking with Brian Syverson, former board member of a co-housing property. Thanks for joining us, Brian, and welcome to HOA. It's a true story. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Also joining us today is Bill Mann, president of GB Group. Thank and you, Ray. Kelly Zibel, owner of DC Group Management. Hi, good to be here. So I think the first thing we got to kind of dive into here, Brian, is give us the definition of co-housing and how that's different from a traditional HOA. Well, I'd have to say that an HOA structure is really forced on co-housing because there's no other structure to really put it in. So as far as the state is concerned, we're a traditional HOA. However, co-housing has, it's an intentional community where the idea is that each of the people moving there wants to be actively involved in the community, wants to know their neighbors, wants to be involved in their lives, and wants to share their lives. So they tend to be fairly small. Ours was 28 units, and we were in Fresno, California, but most of them tend to be about that size. Some are as small as, I think, a dozen, and some are as large as maybe 36, but they're fairly small because we need to know everybody in the community. And the idea is that everybody shares their lives. How do you all come together as a group? I mean, that's even, you know, 28, 36, that's a lot of families coming together. I mean, how do you connect with each other to do this type of a project? I can tell you the history of Fresno co-housing. Our, our name, by the way, is La Querencia, Q-U-E-R-E-N-C-I-A, La Querencia. La Querencia Fresno co-housing is our total name. That formed probably, the initial idea was back in, I think, 2003 or so, where one or two members of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Fresno heard a speaker, her name was Katie McCammett, who had been invited to speak at the church about co-housing. And so that couple kind of asked her to come over and perhaps make a presentation, and they had that at the church a little while later. And I think they got quite a few nibbles, maybe a dozen or two dozen people were interested. And so that kind of got the ball rolling. Once the ball was rolling, however, that's when things really get complicated. And Katie McCammon, this person we spoke to, and her former husband, Chuck Durrett, are kind of the spokespeople for co-housing in the U.S. They actually wrote a book. They wrote a book on it. Uh, and so they have a lot of expertise. And Katie became our project manager. At this point, I was not involved in the project, so I have to say I'm speaking from, from hearsay, but they did get an initial group together uh, and start talking about how they would form the group. And there's a lot to get done. Obviously, they have to, first of all, form some sort of legal structure. So they formed a, an LLC. The initial members, some of them decided not to go with it. Some decided to go with it. And about I think they had 10 or 12 at first that actually ponied up some money to get the thing going and to actually start looking for properties and talk about an architect and talk about design. So again, I was not involved at that point. So between about, I think, 2003 2000 to 2008 was the build-out process. And they found some property. They looked at various properties and they finally found one actually next door to the Unitarian Universalist Church. So it actually happens to be there. So there's this little liberal island in conservative <laughs> Fresno. <laughs> So they found uh, some land and they found an architect and they used the architect Chuck Durrett because he had had yeah. more experience with co-housing than anyone else. So when you get into the design phase, were you involved in that at all when they were actually designing the community, size of the units, et cetera? Do they all vary in size depending on the size of the family or is it pretty much standard? 
No, they're all different. Uh, we had uh, from two bedroom units up to five bedroom units. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So it would depend on the family size. And there was a lot of involvement in the community in the design process. I think Chuck, Durrett, and Katie had a lot of experience guiding communities through this process. So they had kind of a template that they followed to get an idea of what the layout should be, how large the unit should be. You know, they had little exercises that they did. Again, these are things that I was not involved in, but they did make decisions about how big the common house would be. In most co-housing communities, the common house is actually quite large um, compared to your average HOA. And that's so, because there's a shared kitchen and a guest room and various other amenities oh. there that you don't always have. Okay, so you kind of had said that some of the people put up the initial money, but if you wanted to join later after it had kind of got going, how did people contribute money into this program? Well, where did the construction loan, or did you get a construction loan? How's that all work? Yeah, the LLC uh, gave got a construction loan. And again, I'm speaking out of a little ignorance here because I wasn't involved in the process at that point. But when I did join the process, I did have to contribute to the LLC. I don't remember the number. It was, you know, a substantial contribution, but not enough to buy a home <laughs> and certainly nothing uh, that would prohibit people okay. from joining up if they were uh, if they were interested. So you mentioned that you have a common living room and a common kitchen area and that sort of thing. Kind of go through what that's like and how that works. Is it more like a clubhouse or is it a big unit and then, you know, the families are involved in the unit and then it's all in what, you know, downstairs or something? Yeah, one of, actually, that's an interesting question because one of the constant things that we had when we were doing the sales process is a lot of people thought we were a commune. <laughs> and it wasn't like that. Each person has a full unit with a full kitchen and everything that they need. What was shared in the common house would be a very large shared laundry area, a large TV sitting area, a large dining room, a fairly comprehensive kitchen so that you could cook for a crowd. Because the ex expectation is that we do a lot of things together, including meals. And at the outset, we actually had meals almost every month, uh, I mean, every week, where one member would cook for everybody who wanted to come to dinner. And mm. so we had a, what we would call a common meal uh, on a fairly frequent basis. And so you needed a large kitchen for that. There was also additional buildings. We had a, a shop that we shared, uh, like a wood shop. We also had a fairly nice pool and exercise room. So those kind of amenities were all part of the common facilities. Do you have like vegetable gardens and other things like that for the people that like digging in the earth or? Yeah, we did. We'd had a fairly large vegetable garden. It was just a dirt patch when we first moved in, but collectively we all divided it up and made beds and got it irrigated and all that stuff. Oh. Okay. I'm going back to the, the common area. Was it a separate building from everybody like a clubhouse or was it part of the actual building? No, it was a separate building. And okay. we actually had, I, I think it was uh, 14 buildings. So we had duplexes and uh, sixplexes. It, almost all of the 28 units were divided into the duplexes or sixplexes. Uh, and then there was a freestanding pool exercise building, a freestanding clubhouse, and a freestanding shop. So when you talk about kind of ownership in the community and you purchase into the LLC is kind of what you said, did you also get like a grant deed to your property or does the LLC own the unit and you're just buying a portion of the LLC proportional to the size of your unit or how does that work? Well, during the development process, the, all the property was owned by the LLC. And once construction was uh, substantially completed, then we all kind of 
arranged our mortgages and so forth. And once we bought our unit, we, it was more like a conventional HOA. We owned our unit, you know, paint in, paint out was belonging to the common area as well as, uh, you know, 128th of all the common facilities. Okay, we've done a seminar and podcasts on stock cooperatives. So do you guys have the same kind of process where you have to interview any potential new owner and approve them? Or is this traditional condominium, you sell your unit to whoever comes down the street? Well, that that is something that, in my opinion, we probably should have made an arrangement for because there are certain people that are very cut out for co-housing and some people not so much. And we <laughs> did not have any way of controlling who who was sold to. Mm -hmm. uh, and many of the folks who had, uh, who were selling their units had an interest in having the co-housing continue to work. And so they would be fairly diligent at explaining the way it works to the new buyer. But if the person was in a hurry to sell, certainly couldn't rely on the realtor to fill everybody in because that would prevent, pre prevent a sale. Uh, so we frequently would try to encourage people to come to a common meal, come to a monthly meeting, just kind of get a flavor of the place, but it wasn't, it's nothing that we could enforce. So I imagine your board meetings or town hall meetings were really well attended. They tended to be not as well attended as you might think. I mean, we had probably of the 28 units, we had enough to form a quorum, but we frequently we had to beg for a quorum. Hmm. So... <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's mostly because there were a fairly small number of people who are very active, about a third of the community was very active in running the place, uh, and a third was more or less active, and then a third was pretty passive. They kind of like, whatever the rest of you want is fine with us. Bill mentioned the garden. What other types of community events do co-housing put together that you experienced? Well, we had a, a, a monthly work day where we would do uh, our landscape, uh, tend to the landscape. So all the community uh, uh, planting and so forth was taken care of as a group. So we would do a monthly work day in addition to more often than that, we would have uh, almost every weekend, we would have little work parties. As I mentioned, common meals, we would often have TV viewing parties where, you know, to watch Super Bowl or you know, Oscar night or whatever. We would do a lot of pool parties, uh, Fresno's hot as that <laughs> yes. Hades. And so the pool was actively used by a lot of people. A lot of activities we also had. We For a while, we had arranged a meal system where we would uh, get together in small groups in individual people's homes to get, to, get together and know people a little better. Common meals tended to be a little bit more of a circus. When you have, you know, 20 families with kids running around, it's, it's, it was kind of a, a hubbub of activity, but not a good place to sit and chat. Was the makeup of the community retired people and family and families, or was the kind of the kind of folks that were living there at the time you were there? Their intention from the outset was to be all ages. And so there were brand new babies that were being born there, and we had people that were well, well into their retirement. So did you have a community manager or did you self-manage? Oh, we self-managed. Hmm. Did they ever consider a community manager? I think we might have discussed it a couple of times, not so much for managing the entire property as much as specific areas. For example, our landscape was always, we we're always playing catch up on landscape. So we we're thinking about farming that out to a contractor at one point. I've been gone for two years, so I'm not sure exactly, you know, where they are in that now. So Brian, you moved, you know, from this co-housing community into more of a traditional HOA situation a few years ago kind of comparing and contrasting your experiences in, in both of those, 
I mean, what are things that you love and miss about the co-housing environment versus, you know, sort of the traditional HOA and what are things that you're, you know, enjoying in the traditional HOA environment? Well, the main, I have to understand the main reason I, I left co-housing and came to a traditional HOA is location. <laughs> Carmel beats <laughs> Fresno by a mile. I'm just, <laughs> sorry to say, I don't, nothing against Fresno. We lived there for 25 years, but Carmel is better. Um, <laughs> There are a few things that I miss, and there, there are specific neighbors that I was very, very close to. My next door neighbor was a very good friend of mine. We shared a backyard. We, we did our backyard uh, design ourselves and built it ourselves. He was a shop worker like I am, so we had a good connection. And uh, we stay in touch, but it's not as nice as having a next door neighbor. Uh, and there are specific neighbors like that that I, I do miss. I don't really miss the difficulty in in moving things along. As I said, we had about a third, a third, a third. Getting people to participate in community activities and even social activities was sometimes more difficult. And I don't really understand the motivation of moving into co-housing and that not wanting to be a co-houser. And we had quite a few people that were in that situation. And we always always feeling like we we're kind of pulling teeth getting people to participate. So well, I don't I miss think, that. I think Kelly, you probably can relate to that just from regular HOAs, always trying to get people to just be involved. I'm sure some have good neighbors that people get close to and others just have people you don't want there at all. Was there ever a time when you felt like you just wish these people would move out or did you have some kind of rule that you could kick them out if they didn't participate? No, there was no rule. We did, when people signed up along with the stack of all the normal CCNRs and so forth, there was a participation agreement that each mm. person signed that said that they would you know, contribute to common meals, they'd help with landscape, they'd do these various things. But enforcement is always difficult anyway, but in a co-housing community where everybody really is a very nice person and doesn't want to ever say anything mean or bad or or anything like that, it's very difficult to enforce those things. So there were neighbors that were troublesome, there were neighbors that just didn't participate. And there's really no way to enforce that and, and, and force them to do that. I love the idea that you kind of talked about this as being an intentional community. You know, you're intentionally injecting yourselves into each other's lives. And what was appealing for you when you decided to move into this community? You know, when you, you and your family said, hey, let's go really sort of the supercharged community <laughs> environment. You know, what was appealing about that for you? Well, my personal story, uh, my wife and I uh, were living in Fresno, but in the south side of Fresno, and her job had changed so that she was really spending all her day on the freeway. So we wanted to move to the north side of Fresno anyway, and we kept looking for what we were living in at that point, a traditional sort of single family home. Mm -hmm. And at that time, both of our parents had recently, both sets of parents had recently passed away, and we, our kids had moved out of the house. We were feeling kind of like empty nesters. And all the traditional homes we found, we just didn't like the neighborhoods or didn't like the way they looked or some aspect. And so uh, uh, the friend, my next door neighbor at the point, was involved in this co-housing community. He was involved from the very first meeting. And uh, he kept had tried to tease me into coming into this. And so we finally looked at it. And so, as I said, between about 2003 and 2008, they were building it. They were designing it and building it and getting all the things moving. And we stepped in at the last minute in about 2008 and decided to buy uh, and join the group kind of at the last minute. And it was really mostly just to fill that need of, we didn't have neighbors that we knew very well. We felt like our family was rapidly disappearing and we just wanted a little, little more connection. Mm, that's a nice intention though, to want to have more connection. And it seems like we're kind of in a society right now where everybody's isolating 
as opposed to connecting. So I think that's pretty neat. Do you know of more than La Corencia that's doing this type of co-housing? Oh, yeah, there are quite a few in California. I think there's about mm -hmm. 20 in California. And I think there may be as many as like 40 or 50 around the country. And there's many more in development. They have a website, cohousing.org, that is continually finding uh, information about you know, what communities are forming, what communities are already built. Uh, it's a nice reference to see what's going on around the country. I wonder if they're all self-managed. I think most of them are because they're fairly small and because of the fact that they're an intentional community, they really, they want to manage themselves. They, they, and for all the, for better or worse, they feel like, you know, bringing an outside agent into it just wouldn't really fit. But I, I, don't, I can't speak to it. I, I would imagine that there are none that are uh, managed by outside agencies, but yeah, I, don't know that I for worked, a fact. worked on a few co-housing projects here in the Bay Area, and most of them have accounting only type. Uh, mm -hmm. arrangements with their management company, especially with all the legal compliance you've got to do with budgets and everything. So, Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I volunteered to be treasurer at the outset. And so I was treasurer for about <laughs> six years and dealt with all that myself. How did they handle disputes? Was it any different than what you typically see in your current HOA? Well, you mean uh, disputes between individuals? Yes. Neighbors. Yeah. We had a conflict resolution policy, which my wife, uh, tongue-in-cheek called it the conflict avoidance policy. <laughs> um, basically, we're, uh, like I said, co-housers tend to be very nice people who don't like conflict. And so when conflict arises, they kind of duck and cover. <laughs> so yeah. when we did have conflicts, our policy was that the first step was the neighbor needs to talk to the neighbor and try to work it out. And uh, before the HOA would get involved in any way, you had to at least say that that had happened. And from that point on, we would uh, we had a conflict resolution team of three or four people who would talk to both the parties and try to work it out and try to get to a compromise. We really had never, we didn't have enough conflicts that got raised to the level where any real action would need to be taken. Mostly things kind of worked out fairly amicably, I'd say. Was your community a gated community? No, it wasn't. And it was intentionally not a gated community. There had been, it was in a neighborhood that was fairly safe, but things started moving around in Fresno where there's a lot of development. And so things started to get a little bit less safe. And so there was a brief discussion of, should we put a gate up at the front? But the way we had designed the place, there simply was no way to put the gate there at that point. And I think we kind of voted it down for multiple reasons. That's so interesting. I would love it if you could give us the name of the book. I know you gave the website. Why don't you give us both of those so that anybody that's interested might be able to go look them up or check it out? I, I can't remember the exact title of the book, but the, the authors are Katie McCammett, M-C-C-A-M-A-N-T, excuse me, and Chuck Durrett, D-U-R-R-E-T-T. -T, and it's co-housing. And then there's a subtitle of something like a, a new way of the future or model community for the future or something like that. And then there's also cohousing.org. There is one other thing I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, uh, that is the decision-making structure of co-housing of our community. And I think most co-housing communities is by consensus. That is, you need a hundred percent consensus of all of the members, which is an interesting way to run things. And we've had a number of people that we were trying to sell to who, when they heard that they turned tail and ran because they thought 
you know, they'll never, never get 100%. <laughs> you'd never get the roof replaced, even if there was a meteor through the roof, you know, that sort of thing. But it, it actually worked for the most part. But our board meetings did tend to go on fairly long because everybody had an opportunity to speak. We would do something nice and liberal, like we'd have the talking stick and we pass it around the community so that everybody had a chance to speak to every issue before we uh, uh, tried to vote on it and reach consensus. And I think we really, in my tenure there, we really only had one time where consensus was just not working and uh, we were trying to they wanted to someone wanted to install a, an extra path to the parking lot that hadn't been put in the initial design and the two families on the other each side of that walkway just could not reach an agreement um, <laughs> and that was resolved eventually because that family decided to move out one of the families moved out and so the, the, the path got built but after that, we decided to amend our decision-making policy so that we would have an ability to do a supermajority. If after three successive monthly meetings, we couldn't reach consensus, we would move to supermajority. Wow. We never had to use it, but it was there in case we ever needed it. Did you have to rely on your legal counsel ever or just to make sure your bylaws were accordance to the state? You know, we, I think we only use legal counsel at the forming of, of the place. We had uh, one member who was very actively involved who was a lawyer, but not a real estate lawyer. And so she was loath to take on any sort of responsibility as being counsel. But we did pick her brain a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is so fascinating. It sounds like it worked pretty well. So would you say your overall experience was a good one? Absolutely. I'd say yeah. it was very positive. I, I, if I had found a co-housing community in Carmel, I don't know if I would have jumped at the chance just because uh, I was one of the, of the third group that was actively involved. I think I was on the board for you know nine of the 10 years I was there in one officer or another. It takes a lot of work to pull people in the right direction in, when you're running by consensus. And so I think there were some people who came to co-housing with the idea that they really did want to share their lives, but there were some people that came to co-housing thinking that other people might take care of their problems for them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now that, you're on the board of a new traditional, I, we use the word traditional, but we understand they're very similar. Now you're on the board of a new traditional one. Do you enjoy the fact that the board has a little bit more control to move forward? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm surprised that the participation of the general community is even lower than at co-housing. I guess I shouldn't be, but I am a little surprised. <laughs> I would have thought there'd be with 289 units here versus 28 units there. I don't think our, our board meetings are much better attended than our <laughs> board meetings at the previous group. Sounds like um, happy homeowners to me. So <laughs> that That's my I'm, fingers crossed. That's what I'm hoping. Well, the name of the podcast is HOA, It's a True Story. I mean, you've given us a beautiful story here with the whole understanding of what co-housing is like, but do you have a specific story you would like to share? Maybe just a funny event? There were some very nice times. At the time, uh, my son was in high school when we moved in and he was doing music camp during the summertime, which is up in the foothills of the Sierras. And uh, one year we went up there as a group. It was very nice because normally the final concert of their camp was just my wife and I attending. Uh, but we had an entire group of people from co-housing. We all oh. set up and made a huge picnic and got to uh, boost my son at his uh, concert. 
And, uh, and the funniest thing was on the way back, uh, we carpooled and one person had a flat tire. And so as we pulled off, the, we saw the flat tire and there was a row of probably seven cars behind that all pulled out <laughs> behind just to make sure that they're okay. And they had gotten there. It's just, it's very nice group uh, for, if you want to share your life, it's a great experience. If you're not interested in sharing your life, you probably don't want to be there because people get in your business. And if you like that, then it fits. If you don't, then it's probably not a work. That's not going to work for you. Well, thank you, Brian. We've really enjoyed our topic today. It's been so informative and enlightening. And you know, I guess there's no perfect utopian world anywhere. No, community no, out there. But you know, it's good to see that people are still trying. Yeah, trying to yeah. trying to find a better way. Well, thank you again. And if you have any questions for Brian or you need any of those websites, please reach out to us at inquiry at gbgroupinc.com. We'll be happy to pass along the information or get in touch with Brian for you on your behalf. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk again sometime soon, I hope. Thanks. Bye-bye.